the greatest songs I've ever heard and the greatest stories I've ever heard, most hilarious performances are from doormen in New York City and elevator operators and construction workers and karaoke bars and stuff. Those are among the most impactful things I've seen and heard. your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most final tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in LA and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Willendas. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. Our guest today is guitarist Buck Meek, who along with Adrian Lenker, Max Oliarchik, and James Krivchenya make up the four-time Grammy Award-nominated band Big Thief. We're going to talk to Buck about the time Big Thief recorded an album on a Texas pecan plantation, the ways in which Tom Waits has influenced his songwriting, and how his friend almost died delivering a guitar to Bruce Springsteen. So without further ado, let's go to the T-M-E- he show really puts perspective on things, though, doesn't it? Not yeah. too much. There's too yeah, much having perspective now. Alex, we're a show about stories. I mean, Spinal Tap moments are, when you boil it down, stories. They sure are. And what are we as individuals, if not the sum total of our stories? Yeah, I think that we've learned while hosting this show that the story someone is willing to share reveals a lot about who they are as a person. And of course, so much about them is uncovered through their stories. It's really special. And you know, some of the most important stories in our lives may actually not be our own. I mean, they might be other people's stories. In fact, we may not even know the stories that had a profound impact on our lives. Hmm. Like, what do you mean? All right. For example, when I was 10... I was rummaging around my parents' closet and I found- Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, under- hold on, hold on. Before you tell me what you found, let me just ask you this. Why were you rummaging around your parents' closet? What's the story there? I don't remember, but I do remember, and you probably feel like an ass after hearing this, is that I found buried under a pile of junk, a portrait of a little girl. And when I asked my mom who it was, she immediately burst into tears and ran away from me. Whoa. She wouldn't talk about it. My dad wouldn't talk about it. And later I found out that that little girl was a sister I had who died of pneumonia a decade before I was born. And even though I didn't know that story before that day, it explained a lot about my family, like why my mother was so overprotective and why my parents barely spoke to each other because they went through this traumatic experience. And instead of coming closer, they came apart. Mm. And from that day on, I had a different perspective on my family. Wow. Well, that's an incredible story, old chum. And I'm grateful to say that I don't think I have anything like that. If I did, I could potentially rewrite the way I think about my life and my upbringing. So I get why that really had a profound impact on you. Well, I just so you know, I went through your parents' closet and I could tell you a few things. (laughs) (laughs) But, But seriously, thank you for sharing that story, Alan. It's very moving. And I think it's one that our guest today, Buck Meek, would appreciate. He told us that he comes from a storytelling family himself. Right. And his solo work, as well as his own work with Big Thief, is really very personal and narrative. And I think that's likely why it connects with so many people. It connects with me. 
Yeah, well, you were especially excited when uh, we got the confirmation. Buck joining us. So yes, I was. Before we speak with Buck, listeners, please do two things for us that are genuinely helpful. First, follow us on Instagram at TMEP Show. You'll be in the know about upcoming guests and other Spinal Tap Moment fun facts that we post there. And second, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please rate this show in the app and write a short review. It really helps new listeners decide whether to give too much effing perspective a try. We definitely appreciate the support. We'll be right back with Buck Meek after a short break. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. And now, a recording artist whose third solo album, Haunted Mountain, was just released on 4AD Records. Big Thief guitarist, Buck Meek. Buck, during COVID quarantine, my daughter Sunny and I basically listened to two bands. One was BC Camp Light. Ooh. And the other was Big Thief. Nice. And uh, if you could wear a groove into a digital streaming copy uh. of a song, Masterpiece would have a lot of wear and tear on it. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So thanks for joining us and thanks for that. I'm hoping that you are somewhat acquainted with the movie This is Spinal Tap. Of course, I've seen it countless times. Then you are undoubtedly aware that Spinal Tap is basically a collection of stories from other bands, right? For instance, the Stonehenge scene may have been inspired by Black Sabbath because Black Sabbath also had a Stonehenge set that their designer mistook feet for meters or meters for feet and created a Stonehenge that was too large for venues. Uh But as a side note, Black Sabbath bassist Geezer Butler was told by the Spinal Tap people that it was merely a coincidence because the film, I guess, was in production when that happened to Black Sabbath. So who knows? Whoever knows. Yeah, they're tapping into that collective consciousness, that rock and roll consciousness. Totally. Now, I bring this up because on your new solo album, Haunted Mansion. Haunted Mountain. Uh, Sorry, Haunted Mountain. What did I say? Haunted Mansion? Like like the Disney ride? You always have Disney on your brain, Alan. I know. Well, you know. (laughs) They came out like at the same time, which is super confusing. (laughs) Didn't plan that one. But I think actually we debuted the song Haunted Mountain on KCRW. And the first thing they said was Haunted Mansion. So you're not the first. Well, let's be frank here. Haunted Mountain could be the combination of Haunted Mansion and Space Mountain. Totally. So it's not as crazy as you think. You have a great song called Cyclades, which it's all about 
storytelling. It's a song about stories your mom and dad told you, like the one where their car passed right through another car instead of hitting it. I actually, I think I just made it up because I remember them telling me a story about when they were on their honeymoon in Greece, they were on a mountain road in their little car and there was a big rainstorm and they came around a corner and they started sliding towards the cliff and lost mm. control. And then this big truck came around the corner, like a big lorry, and they were going to wreck with this truck, but somehow they metaphysically went through the truck instead of crashing into it. They went in one side and out the other through the matter of the truck and embraced. And that's how I remember them telling me the story. Weirdly, my brother remembers the same thing. But I retold the story to them recently, and they said, that's crazy, we never said that. You made that up. <laughs> Which I thought was so funny. Just another example of how our brains mythologize our experiences, and there's such a thin line between myth and history. I wanted to tell you, Buck, I was a concert tour manager, and one of my bands was the Bodines from Milwaukee, and I remembered after a gig, I was driving a truck back through Indianapolis, heading north, coming home, and it was super snowy. And I saw a semi do a 90-degree slide. I mean, it fully stretched out in front of me. And I thought, okay, there's no avoiding this, right? I'm yeah. either going to go straight into it, or at least I'm going to clip it. And somehow, I passed through just before that thing oh. blocked the entire freeway and probably stalled it for hours. Oh. So, um, you know, whether it's a tour manager or your parents, yeah. these things do happen. You guys are confusing things because I've seen both those things on the Haunted Mansion ride at Disney. So I think that's where you got those from. <laughs> yeah, for sure. My friend Flip Scipio is a badass luthier from the Netherlands, but he lives in Brooklyn. And he told me a story. He was sent Bruce Springsteen's telly to mm. actually replicate, to make two copies, like exact copies. So Bruce would have a backup in case he, I guess, broke a string for a second or whatever. But they sent him the real telly, you know, to replicate and... Worked on it for a couple months, built a couple copies. And then he was asked to hand deliver it to Bruce at this arena in Jersey. So he drove his motorcycle from Brooklyn to Jersey with the guitar on his back. Maybe he was delivering one of the copies. I doubt he was doing that with Bruce's real guitar. I forget. <laughs> I'm mythologic. But nonetheless, he was on the highway right before the arena and a big semi was in front of him. And one of the tires, you know, the 18-wheeler tires came off and like a whole tire still and was rolling right towards him going like 80 miles an hour. Wow. And then right before it hit him, it bounced over his motorcycle. And then he pulled off the highway and went and actually gave Bruce the telly, handed it to him. Wow. Yeah, I've had so many close calls on the highway on tour. A couple times like that where something happened right in front of me and I just gracefully swerved out of the way and continued on my way. It's happened a few times. Life is a game of inches, right? Yeah. The very first Big Thief tour, we were traveling in a tiny little car, like a Honda Fit or something. And there was this freak snowstorm in Tennessee, I think. And there was just wrecks everywhere because they weren't prepared for it with the salt trucks and stuff. And we were on our way to Nashville for this show. We were super late. I was driving and then this big suburban came flying by us on the right side and hit the snowbank and lost control and was spinning, going like 80 miles an hour, just spinning donuts down the highway. And I just moved over and then just barely avoided it. Everybody started screaming and Max, our bass player, was asleep in the back seat and like he just woke up in tears, I remember, like 
Right. Woke up from a nap in tears because there was so much fear in the car that woke him up. Wow. You're saying you were on tour in a Honda Fit? What was this, like a harmonica quartet? I mean, you can't fit anything in a Honda Fit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we put everything inside of the drum set, like a Russian doll kind of thing. <laughs> Crazy. You know, the turducken? My friend told me about this thing in New Orleans they do, or in the swamps. Sure. It's like a nutria inside of a raccoon inside of a wild boar. <laughs> <laughs> What's a nutria? Mm, mm. A nutria is like a little swamp rat, like a swimming rodent. Goody. Oh, I thought it was a cookie without sugar. <laughs> um, okay, so here's my story to top it all. So I was uh, recording an album in Chicago in 94, and I was driving back and forth along 41, which is the, a highway, right? So it has stoplights, right? So I'm driving. Every stoplight, I see a cop perpendicular to the road. I'm like, that's weird. And another one, cop is perpendicular at the stoplight. And then I find myself on an unlit stretch of highway and I see in my rearview mirror a car catching up on me like a bat out of hell. And in no time, like right behind me. So I switch lanes, it follows me. I go back to the other lane, it follows me again. Finally, there's an exit on the freeway and it tries to go around me and it misses the exit and it hit a tree and it came apart. Oh. The whole car, it didn't explode. It was just a silent complete destruction. And all of a sudden I see cops everywhere converging on us. And I found out that that guy was a carjacker and he died. Whoa, that's crazy. So Spinal Tap is pretty much an easy band to classify, right? They're a heavy metal band, but they had their moments. They had the uh, Listen to the Flower People. They're a psychedelic band. Cups and Cakes was kind of like a British folk band. You guys, in researching this, everyone's trying to categorize you, which I think is a testament to how versatile and interesting you guys are. We found Stereo Gum called you Rustic Loft Rock. Oh my God. <laughs> like, is that positive? <laughs> What's that even mean? It's like Big Thief is the only band that you can book through Zillow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another article had you as country indie metal folk. And nice. I plopped you guys into ChatGPT and I said, <laughs> explain Big Thief to me. Hell yeah. ChatGPT is not very creative. Whoever that guy is, that's yeah, it. That, that chat guy. <laughs> the, yeah, Chet. Chet from Chat. Yeah. I, maybe I was on ChatGPT. Yes. He wrote, often described as folk rock with elements of indie rock and, and alternative rock. So, hmm. okay, thanks for not describing the band, right? I remember I had a band, Women's Liberace, like in the late 80s, early 90s, and everything was categorized as alternative if it wasn't the Rolling Stones or something. And so I kept referring to us as Baroque muscle folk. Hell yeah. And it really stuck. It was in every bio and every article written about us, even though it didn't really mean anything at all. And I'm wondering if... You find it amusing when you see your band, Big Thief, or your solo stuff categorized in print. I don't know. I wish the music could just speak for itself. I think most journalists are so lazy. I, I just think it usually takes more than a few words to really talk about music. But I, it gives us something to push back against, though. Sometimes it's really funny and amusing and, and triggers a reaction, I suppose. But it's pretty meaningless to me, to be honest. I don't pay much attention to it. We had a fun conversation with Jeremiah Freights from The Lumineers. And we were talking about the fact that Alice Cooper took exception to the fact that they'd been nominated for some award as a rock band. 
Alice felt compelled to say, the Lumineers aren't rock and roll. You know, they ought to go and eat a steak. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Jared was just sort of like, you know, he just kind of shrugged and I eat meat. What's the point? That's funny. I think I read a Neil Young interview at one point where someone asked him to classify his music and he just called it the music of the young spirit. That's probably the one I relate to the most. You wrote a song for the new album, Didn't Know You Then, which was a challenge from a friend to write something that was laden with cliches, right? That's true. And then you write this song and your wife loves it and it becomes the template for the album. Did that free you in terms of your songwriting when you decided to simplify and get a little closer to what your meaning was as opposed to trying to be poetic? Totally. Yeah, that idea came from my friend Luke Temple is a great songwriter. Had a band called Here We Go Magic for a long time. And he taught a songwriting course through the schoolofsong.org and he talked about how somehow music sanctifies words. Like even the simplest dialogue or simplest conversation can be sanctified with melody somehow and tends to give it meaning. And then also he talked about the love song and the history of romantic love and how it's actually a pretty recent concept. And I think with the advent of psychoanalysis and the concept of codependence, you know, attachment and romantic love has a bit of a taboo, at least in the arts but that somehow we're all simultaneously moved by a good love song. No matter how like cool we think we are, um, <laughs> we'll still cry in the CVS. We're like the white snake song, come on, it, you know, <laughs> we fell in love too or whatever. And so he gave us a list of cliches and told us to write a song as if we really believed in the cliche, like I'll die for you, like as if we really would die for someone. So originally I'd written the chorus that didn't know you then with the lyrics, I'm nothing without you, with nothing to live for. Or no, sorry, I'm nothing without you with nothing to die for. My life is only waiting. It was like three cliches in one chorus with those same verses that you hear on Didn't Know You Then. But nonetheless, I sang that for my lady. And it was like a joke. You know, I'd written it as a joke. And she blushed, turned red, and she loved it. And like, <laughs> it was kind of this revelation for me. <laughs> um, and so, of course, I didn't really believe in those words. So I rewrote the chorus into something that I could really stand behind. But nonetheless, I think the essence was still there of just a really earnest love song. I don't think I'd really had the courage to write like that before. And so I think it was empowering to just balance all this cryptic language with some simplicity. Yeah, I think, you know, I have like a list of words that I won't use, like destiny and fire and flame and CVS. I won't use CVS in a song. Uh, as, uh, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and, and pretty much everything in a U2 song lately. So it's like, totally. I won't use those, right? But it's interesting how you can create rules that get in your way of expressing yourself. I have the same tendency to. So many of my favorite writers write so simply. And then there's this kind of writer behind the writer. There's like meaning behind the words or in between the space, like John Prine or people like Michael Hurley. There's this kind of conversational element to their writing, often in dialogue. And then you kind of sense this relationship between the two characters in the song. And the meaning is like in what's unspoken between them, like their history. And I, I try to return to that. Like if I'm feeling writer's block, maybe just open up a text thread from like between me and my mom or something. Interesting. And just try to transcribe some of that very simplistic conversational language between loved ones. And then putting that to melody, somehow that like opens me up. Buck, I don't think it's a coincidence that you mentioned falling in love to a white snake song. Hmm. 
<laughs> there's something lurking there, you know, you know, something very romantic, like slide it in or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Lick my love poem, the most beautiful yeah. love song ever. Yeah. yeah. Anger is really easy to express, but love, not so much. Yeah. I don't know many songwriters who can consistently tap into that emotion in an interesting way. I mean, mm. Neil Young, Paul Westerberg, Nick Drake, uh, Randy Newman, Al Green, Amy Mann, Otis Redding, Backrack, you know, but not many. They're the hardest songs for me to write, for sure. Yeah. I was listening to this George Saunders interview recently. He talked about how, like, when you go through a loss, death, or a breakup, or something really painful, there's this moment where you're pulled out of your body and you have perspective, you know, you're tapped into the cycle of life. You know, you're kind of pulled out of your ego for a moment. And of course, often comes with tragedy, but there's this sense of transcendence there too that is really valuable and freeing in a way. And so he was talking about trying to tap into that in his writing process. But I feel like, yeah, going through a loss, there's this kind of out-of-body experience that comes along with it. Whereas when you're in love and you're in earnest, it's like you're very much in your body and in your feelings and just in this kind of soupy place and i don't know it's it's hard to maintain perspective there but it's also just hard to write good words right it's yeah. like i didn't write a good song till i was probably 24 and what triggered me to change my writing style and actually tap into what i think i did well was a interview with tom petty and in it tom petty said i like to approach every song like a painting mm. and of course my first song was exactly about nighthawks at the diner i took it so literally <laughs> but each song is such a carefully crafted moment that really you have to visualize to write about. And if you visualize something, it's easier to describe it, I think. Yeah, totally. I remember reading a Tom Waits interview when I was just starting to write songs that really impacted my process about how he tries to write for all the senses and like create a habitable environment for the ears to create a sense of weather and a time of day and mm. paint the light and the time of year and the air pressure and just to really like provide a space to live in. That really changed my relationship with writing. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. We talk a lot about band dynamics, and you have such a powerful personality in your band, with Adrian and the songs have such a specific and unique style and you call your band a collective, right? Yeah. Can you describe how you guys write and how you guys interact and what's kept you guys together for so long? You and Adrian divorced and you still are in a band together, which is pretty remarkable. For sure. The music kept us together. I think that we always felt this sense of 
reverence for music as a whole. I mean, I think for Adrienne, it was a form of just survival writing and processing her life and journaling. And for all of us, it was our spirituality growing up as kids. And we all had teachers that really tapped us into the power of music for building community and deepening communication and mythologizing our experiences, transcending our mortal coil, et cetera, through music and just experiencing joy. And I think all four of us had our own long history with that developing. Max grew up in Tel Aviv playing jazz bass, upright bass, and James grew up in Chicago playing in rock bands and making aggressive electronic music. And I grew up in Texas playing gut house blues and a lot of Manoush jazz and Western swing and like dive bars and dance halls and mostly music for parties, for dancing. And then we found each other. And I think it's been a long process of just like accepting each other's differences and really making space for everyone's character musically. And I feel like that's when we really started to feel the power of our band is whenever we made space for everyone's character with Dragon Noir Mountain, for instance. The diversity of the sounds on that record is really just all four of us having space to be really honest with our instincts. And I think that's something a lot of fans don't understand is that, you know, there's the four members of your band and then there's the band itself. It's like its own entity an amalgamation of your individual influences. And your influences are very distinct because you really bring to the band your Texas experience and more specifically, the Storytellers Festival that you attended every year. I think that's been very formative for you. Can you explain a little bit about that? Oh yeah, there's this festival in the Texas Hill Country called the Kerrville Folk Festival, but it's really a songwriting festival. It's been happening out there for I think since 1972, for 18 days every summer. And it's on a big ranch out there. Songwriters and storytellers, too, from all over the country. And they gather and sing songs around campfires um, every night, almost like a little town of, of storytellers. I started going there when I was maybe 15 years old. And yeah, that had a huge impact on me as a songwriter. That is really cool. Yeah. And that's one thing I love about Kerrville. I'd say most of the people that go there to sing their songs and tell their stories are not professional musicians or touring songwriters. They're working people, people from all over, hmm. masons and cooks and construction workers and doctors. And they're writing because they have to. And it's an oral form. And, you know, you'll spend the whole night till sunrise sitting around a fire with eight people. And maybe each person only sings one or two songs because it's mostly conversation, kind of like dog-eared with a song here and there as a reference to something that comes up in conversation and these people that you've developed friendships with over the course of, you know, many years for 18 days at a time. And so you spend almost a whole year out in the world by yourself collecting stories and then you bring them to Kerrville to share. That's awesome. So yeah, it's a cool analogy for the kind of life I like to lead at least. And it's um, really the origins of country music, right? Yeah, exactly. For sure. Like the Carter family, he went like a traveling salesman. He would go into rural communities and he'd buy their songs and he'd bring it back so that they could interpret them. And totally. it's so cool that it still exists yeah. in some way. I mean, the greatest songs I've ever heard and the greatest stories I've ever heard, most hilarious performances are from doormen in New York City and elevator operators and construction workers and karaoke bars and stuff. Those are among the most impactful things I've seen and heard.
We've already mentioned the fact that all of us who've been on the road have lived through these Spinal Tap moments that were captured so well in the film. What is your favorite scene in This is Spinal Tap and why? Probably the Lick My Love pump scene. <laughs> the piano piece. It's because it's so sincere. And then, you know, <laughs> the little punctum at the end with the, the punchline of the title of the song. It's just, it's like a perfect joke. It's like this respite from all this insanity and all this, you know, excess. And it's this moment where you really start to soften up and like fall in love with this guy. You feel safe and vulnerable. And then, of course, he, he switches it on you at the last second. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a song on your album called The Rainbow from Judy Still. And Judy Still is a songwriter who OD'd in 1979. She's an underground influence in a lot of music. And you got to complete a song of hers you found in her archives. And, you know, Lick My Love Pump, he goes... D minor is the saddest of all keys, right? She had a complete cartography of what every key meant emotionally, right? That's true. And I've always assumed that about her, that she had a really solid relationship with harmony and composition in regards to human emotions. And I feel like often her lyrics were, you know, really subtle and empowered by her compositional devices. But then when I got to look through her journals, there was like a page mapping out these relationships between intervals and emotion. Can you just describe one? To be honest, I didn't take a photo. It felt like a sacred thing. I, and I, I sure. don't remember any specifics. I was flipping through this journal on camera and I didn't have a long time to dwell on it. I feel like Judy Sill is unique in the realm of these folk songwriters or whatever you want to call it, in that she has the compositional prowess of someone like from, you know, the great American songbook era, like Irving Berlin or somebody, just with this absolute control of harmony in regards to lyrics. There's really like a unison. And the arc of her storytelling and the balance between creating tension and releasing the whole arc of a story with both the lyrics and the melody as one, you know. Well, I have a great adjunct to that. So my band was the Falling Willendas, and half my band, after we quit, joined Brian Wilson. Nice. And my bandmate actually co-wrote Brian's album, Lucky Old Son. And Brian was given access to... George Gershwin's archives of unfinished material by Disney. Damn. And so Brian got to take two unfinished Gershwin songs and complete them and record them. Cool. That's dope. Yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah. Wilson is definitely another person like Judy Sill who had absolute control of that. In 2019, you guys signed a 4AD and you released two albums, UFOF and Two Hands. That was in the same year, the first one in May and the second one in October. That's a very old school kind of thing, right? I mean, I think that in the 50s and 60s, maybe that happened more frequently, but that's not typically happening in the teens of this century. So what was behind that? And I just think about sort of the intensity of cranking out two albums and probably related supporting tours behind that. The basic idea was that in the first couple albums we made, there was this kind of polarity of heavy, like cathartic songs, and then this really more introspective, ethereal side of our writing and playing. And we had mixed those two things on our first couple of records, but we wanted to separate them for our third and fourth and kind of just give full power to one and full power to the other with two separate albums. And so we booked 
two sessions back to back. The first was at Bear Creek up in Washington State, like in the Cascade Mountains, with the pine trees and the mist. And that's where we went to capture the more ethereal songs. And then mm. the second was at Sonic Ranch in West Texas, out in the desert, right on the Mexican border in the summertime. And we went there to capture the heavier, more cathartic stuff. And so we actually recorded them in two months straight, back to back, a month each. Two weeks for recording, two weeks for mixing or something like that. And then we staggered the releases. But have you ever heard of Sonic Ranch Studio? No. no. That's like the most freaking Spinal Tap studio ever. It's this studio out in West Texas on this gigantic pecan orchard. Huh. <laughs> like probably 3,000 acres or something. And the Mexican border fence runs along the whole property. Wow. And it's run by this dude, Tony Ranchich, who was born on the property. His great-grandfather planted the pecan trees. And he inherited this place when he was a teenager. And it's this, you know, massive pecan empire. But he was obsessed with rock and roll as a kid. And traveled the world collecting guitars and musical equipment, spent a lot of time in Paris as a teenager, and also collecting a lot of crazy art, and just filled this hacienda in the middle of the ranch with all of this gear and started recording bands, I think back in the 80s. And so now it's like this crazy studio complex out in the desert. I think there's five studios there. But Tony is just kind of living in his own lawless world out there. And he has this crazy sports car and he'll come into your session at 10 p.m. And he'll be like, hey, guys, you want to go to New Mexico? And he'll put you in his crazy race car and he'll drive like 150 miles an hour from Texas to New Mexico in like 30 minutes and take you to some bar on the border where they have the chandelier from Casablanca. And there's a water tower on his property. He's famously taken bands into his car to jump the water tower. He like built a ramp and he'll jump it. With his car. Um, Can't believe I haven't heard of this. Yeah, he has uh. some really wild stories. My friend recently got him to play shotgun on their record. <laughs> like as a percussion instrument out in the yard. Oh, actual shotgun. Pub. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you recorded two saviors in New Orleans in a small house. Any interesting Spinal Tap stories about recording in New Orleans? Because it's such a magical, mysterious place. Well, my friend loaned us her house for that session, this beautiful little house there. And she was kind enough to give us the space as a gift to record for a week. But right before the session, she said, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry, but I got an offer to record a music video in my house with this local hip hop group. And they're going to pay me a ton of money. Would it be possible for y'all to just like take off for half of a day in the middle of your session? And of course we were happy to accommodate. And so in the middle of two saviors, we had to like tuck everything away. And then this giant entourage came in, did up the whole house. And so somewhere on the internet, there's a video of a full on hip hop entourage twerking on the tables and the whole thing. Oh, that is great. So you could probably see our guitars like tucked away in the corner somewhere if you look hard enough. <laughs> I have New Orleans to thank for my whole family because I was in Milwaukee where I met my wife and we went to New Orleans on maybe our first romantic holiday and we were in Jackson Square and I was planning to move to Chicago to be closer to my band because my band was in Chicago. And the guy read our palms and then he goes to me, you know, love don't travel 90 miles. Whoa. Really? And I didn't move. Damn. Wow. And yeah, I didn't move. And now I have an entire family because of that man. Cool. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I got to share one of my favorite New Orleans stories. I was on tour with this band called Balloon, and they were opening for Sarah McLaughlin. They were two British guys and a Kiwi. And they had recorded their album at Daniel Lenoir's Kingsway Studio, which was in the French Quarter, this beautiful old Creole mansion that he had restored. And 
he had this Neve board in the living room and you could stay at the house when you're recording. And if you just liked the timbre of a room, you could just run a line up there and record in that room or whatever. They record their album there and had become friends with the house manager. So we came back and we were just hanging out. And Daniel had recently done U2's big albums and Amy Lou Harris's Wrecking Ball and other things. So he was well-resourced and he had like 15 vintage Harleys in the garage and a couple of vintage Indians. I mean, it was just a, a cool scene. But I was exploring some of the upstairs bedrooms and I was in one that had these built-in glass door cabinets. And there was nothing in them, except I noticed a little glint of something towards the back of one of the shelves. I opened it up and looked, and it was his Grammy for Peter Gabriel's So. Nice. (laughs) That's cool. (laughs) Well, speaking of Grammys, you guys have been nominated several times. And I'm just wondering, you know, we've heard some crazy stories in the past about actually being at the Grammy ceremony, you know, walking the red carpet, that kind of thing. Anything memorable happened to you guys as you were at the Grammys? Well, the band actually didn't go. Yeah, James and Adrian and Max, I don't think really want to subscribe to the idea of competition in music. Hmm. And I wasn't planning on going either, but I ended up going with my father and my brother because my brother was nominated for a Grammy the same year, actually, Oh, for a composition that he had in the Spider-Man film. Very cool. Wow. And so we went with my dad and he was super proud and it was really sweet. But yeah, nothing crazy, just like a really sweet day with my dad. Uh, That is so nice. That's awesome. Yeah. So, Buck, tell our listeners where they can find information about Big Thief and about your solo projects on the socials and stuff. We like to help you get the word out. For sure. I think Big Thief Music on Instagram. My Instagram is just my name, Buck Meek, or anywhere. Well, thank you so much for being on. And honestly, I love the new album. And again, thanks for helping me and Sonny get through COVID quarantine. Thank you so much. That means a lot. (laughs) That's what we do it for, that it, it helps people out or... Our music has this private life out in the world beyond our knowing. That's the coolest thing about it. Thank you. Thanks, Buck. Buck Meek, ladies and gentlemen. Earnest, humble, and more crazy high-speed car stories than a veteran Formula One driver. I guess it's true what they say, listeners. Still waters run deep. And in case you're wondering, this show is not sponsored by Honda Fit yet. But hey, we're open to it. Our email address is in the show notes. Too Much Effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our music composer is J.K. Harrison. Please follow us on Instagram at TMEPshow. Visit our website at TMEPshow.com to sign up for our mailing list. You can find other episodes featuring rock stars, comedians, and entertainment luminaries whose bizarro stories we enjoy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. for a head-bangingly good time dive into the world of heavy metal with the brutally delicious podcast here we don't just talk music we welcome you into our heavy metal family join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars we go beyond the typical interviews exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal so whether you're a die-hard metalhead or just curious join our family 
and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Evergreen Podcast Network.